to follow all the laws found in the Torah as prescribed to the Jews or to not follow all those laws found in the Torah for the Jews. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the Messianic Movement slash Hebrew Roots Movement. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. So I told you that a couple weeks ago, yes, I've been missing in action for a couple weeks, that I was going to go to an undisclosed location on a mission trip. Well, that mission trip is now over. I'm back. I'm safe. Um, the trip that I went on uh, was a little bit risky. I went to China, guys. I went to, uh, started off in Hong Kong, and then I was part of a a study Bible and uh, pastoral materials, teaching materials, smuggling mission. Yeah, you heard me right. Uh, so yeah, some of you are going to be like, oh my goodness, you're you're dumb. <laughs> and yeah, that was a little risky. Um, on the other hand, I suppose it wasn't as risky as uh, some people have said. Uh, uh, generally, as an American, if you do get busted, and I did, I did get busted. I did get detained on one of my runs. Uh, one of the craziest experiences I've ever been part of. Uh, but as an American, you, at least at this point in history, enjoy somewhat of a special status. And uh, you will not get uh, detained indefinitely and sent to a labor camp or something like that. Uh, if you are a Chinese citizen and you get busted doing something like this, yeah, you're gone. You're going to disappear. Um and so uh, I guess as an American, I'm going to enjoy that special status while I still have it and take part in what the underground church is doing in China. Uh, friends, I, I do plan on, on publishing a short little podcast that just details what I've been through, and it won't be part of my regular weekly uh, podcasting thing. I'll just throw that in there as an extra for those who would like to jump over and have a listen to that. It won't be as much of the worldview type topics that we've been getting into, but yet at the same time in a round and round and about way it will be because I would like to talk about, yeah, the, the culture that I experienced out there. Uh, yes, some of the mishaps, which is not so much, uh, along the lines of this podcast, but also, uh, I encountered some worldviews, uh, some new church movements out there. In fact, these new church movements that I encountered, uh, I'm going to probably try and record a couple podcasts for my new family on the China side uh, to, to download. It's, it's kind of tricky. They have no access to Google. Google's banned in China. Gmail is banned in China. Facebook is, is banned in China. But somehow, some way, I am getting tons of downloads from China. Uh, and that's just not, that's not just the Hong Kong side. That is all over mainland communist China. Um, I asked some of the missionaries out there about that and they said, well, there's always ways 
through the Great Firewall. That's what they refer to it as, the Great Firewall of China. And so uh, there are a couple uh, movements out there that are actually stirring up a lot of, of problems for the church in China. Now, what I experienced when I was out there is that the China, the, the church in China is very young and um, perhaps not as learned as your American uh, believer. And I think that's because it's so hard to get your, your hands on good, uh, well, first of all, a good Bible. And second of all, you know, we have access to all these commentaries, millions of podcasts, um, you know, uh, going to church on a Sunday, Sunday and having a pastor who has spent considerable amounts of time studying the scriptures and really knowing what they're talking about. Uh, tons of study books. You can go to any Bible store and find a lot of junk. But amongst the junk, there's a lot of good Bible study aids. You can't get that in China. So the average believer there is very young uh, in their faith, which is kind of tragic. There is a need. And I, I don't know how to fill that need. I don't know if, if God will use me in that way. I don't know. But uh, what I do want to do is produce a couple podcasts addressing some of these um, alternative movements and trust that God is somehow going to find find a way to get those podcasts through that great firewall to uh, the brethren in China. It's, uh, wow. It, it, guys, my, my heart's been changed. Uh, really... That was a moving experience in so many different ways. I've experienced so many strange and wonderful things. It, it was quite the adventure. I can't wait to just sit down and, and spend about a half hour, 45 minutes for those who are interested in hearing it and, and just go over some of the stuff we experienced. I mean, everything from getting busted on one run and being detained to making it through on another, uh, some of the crazy, almost spy versus spy. I felt like I was in a spy movie trying to get these things over and the experiences we had. Believe it or not, something else that's kind of bizarre is that I literally was used to save a woman's life while I was out there. How did that even happen? Uh, but I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And had I not been there, she she would have died. Uh, very strange. <laughs> How did all that happen? I don't know. Uh, but uh, my experiences on a 41-hour train ride, oh, I, I am so glad I went through that. But having said that, I will never do that again. <laughs> yeah, last time I said I'll never do something was earlier this year. I was in San Francisco with my wife. We went to Chinatown. And after experiencing Chinatown, I looked at my wife and said, I will never go to China. No way, never. And she looked at me and she's like, those are famous last words. And yeah, lo and behold, later that year, I was on a plane to China. Oh, God's got a strange sense of humor. But uh, yeah, that, that train ride that we went on was something else. I'll tell you about that too. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping to sit down and really record something uh, to give you guys a taste of that. I have uh, a couple ghetto recordings of what praise and worship sounds like in the underground church. Oh my goodness, guys. I can't even play them to people that I know without tearing up and becoming kind of a wreck. Um, in fact, I'm kind of having that problem right now. 
what an experience, guys. Wow, what an experience. So be looking forward to that. Uh, that'll be coming up the road. I do have three podcasts, counting this one, uh, already recorded on uh, common pitfalls of the Messianic movement. Uh, after that, I do have Jill Martin lined up to talk about uh, Kabbalah. And I also have been going back and forth with Randall Price, the archaeologist Randall Price, to talk about uh, biblical archaeology. Uh, I'm still hoping to get Sharam Hadian on. Uh, it's really difficult to get a hold of him. He's been on the road with uh, conference, uh, which always has a an amazing lineup of, of people. And so it's been very difficult trying to get a hold of him and getting back and forth with him. But I'm hoping to get him on. And I've got some other exciting uh, plans, too, for future podcasts that I'm kind of getting pumped about. But anyway, enough of that. Let's go ahead and jump in here and uh, start talking about common pitfalls of the Messianic movement. Okay, like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, many of you have written me over the last couple years asking me to uh, talk about the Hebrew roots slash Messianic movement and... I've been putting this off for quite some time, and now I, I believe it is the time to go ahead and do this. Who is uh, the Hebrew, or what is the Hebrew Roots Movement, and what do they believe? There are so many uh, beliefs that are part of this movement uh, that are rock solid, and there are many things that you find amongst these crowds that, uh, well, can be damaging uh, to your walk with Christ. And so today, as we explore the beliefs of the Messianic movement, uh, realize, first of all, that I am somewhat painting with a broad brush. Uh, these movements are so far and wide. They're so diverse. They're so different. I've been to so many of, of these different congregations and seen how they operate. It's really hard to, to, to lump them all into one category. So just realize that as I'm describing the different things that we're going to talk about, uh, just realize that not all Messianic movements are the same, okay? Uh, many of them are completely and totally Christ-centered, grace-driven, and then you'll find others uh, that, that really uh, error on the side of legalism. So today, yeah, we're going to be discussing these movements, some of the common beliefs that you'll find amongst these crowds and uh, many of you, you're going to find that, oh, wow, yeah, I have been exposed to these guys in one place or another. I also want to start by saying that uh, many of these uh, Messianic congregations really are just fine, okay? They don't really have any problems. But as we look at the, these movements, uh, we're going to be discussing some of the common pitfalls that you find amongst the Messianic slash Hebrew Roots uh, crowd. And also, as we progress through these podcasts, I'm just going to refer to them, for the most part, as the Messianic Movement. But just know that I'm also talking about the Hebrew Roots Movement as well. They're pretty much one and the same. So, uh, let's just jump right in. Let's look at some of these uh, various beliefs. First of all, I guess the best way to sum this movement up uh, is that uh, there is a push to get back to the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. Uh, and when you look at it strictly from that perspective, there's really, there's not, there's not really anything wrong with that. 
Uh, you're just, you know, many of these movements are looking to find that Jewish root to our faith. Uh, where we run into some major problems is where a lot of these groups start getting tied up in legalism and this feeling of elitism, okay? Uh, one of the things that you'll find amongst these movements is a, a emphasis on celebrating and observing the feasts. Uh, I've done a series on observing the feasts. It, it, and friends, if you haven't observed the feasts, you really ought to check that out. Uh, perhaps even uh, checking that out within your own church. I know that within our church, the church that I attend, uh, we observed the Passover last year. It was awesome. It's, it's very educational to walk through the customs, the beliefs, as, okay, not man's traditions that you'll find. There are so many traditions of man that you're going to find in these feasts, okay? Uh, but if you can get back to the biblical foundation of them, uh, what's so fascinating, what's so amazing is how they point towards Christ in every direction that you go as you're working through these various feasts. You're going to find that Jesus seems to be the focus of all of them. The spring feasts having to do with Christ's first coming and the fall feasts having to do with his second coming. It's, it's fascinating stuff. So for more information on that, check out my series on the feasts. Uh, that was back when I was doing podcasts that were about 15 minutes in length. But yeah, there's some really interesting material there where you're going to see that everything that happens during these feasts has some kind of uh, Christ-centered focus. It's, it's amazing. And I mean, isn't that what you find throughout the whole Old Testament? You find Jesus everywhere you look. It's as if God was uh, planting seeds and uh, having the message of the cross embedded everywhere you go throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the solution to our problem, which is sin. But yeah, uh, one of the pitfalls that the Messianic movement often fall into is a, a not just an emphasis on observing the feasts, but rather that you must observe the feasts. And many of you know uh, that I have a, a past in the, the hyper-charismatic church, and there is some overlap between the Messianic movement and the hyper-charismatic movement, okay? Not all Messianic believers are hyper-charismatic, and not all hyper-charismatic believers are messianic. But there seems to be kind of an overlap that you experience. In the church that I attended, uh, there were uh, the blowing of shofars a lot of times to uh, start off the service. Okay, The shofar is that curved ram's horn that you find throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the priests would use them to announce so many different things. Uh, calls to war, calls to come to the temple, uh, various blasts of the shofar uh, during the Feast of Trumpets. Really, they were used for so many different things in day-to-day -day life throughout the Bible. Uh, we had that within our church. There were some people that would wear a yarmulke 
to church. Are you guys familiar with that? The, that skull cap that you see a lot of Jews wearing. Uh, you would find that some people within our congregation would wear those. Uh, some, I can't remember if some people within our group uh, wore the uh, zit seats. Uh, those would be those little tassels that you see hanging down uh, at the waistline of people's garments. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have seen that. Uh, Jews walking around, they've got these uh, strings that look like they're they're hanging down from the waistline uh, as if there was a shirt they're wearing underneath their clothing that had these strings sticking down. Those are the zit seats. Uh, also, Many of you are familiar with the tallit. Uh, it's often referred to as a prayer shawl. I saw those being used all the time uh, in this congregation that I was a part of as well. Uh, people would put this prayer shawl over them and then they would pray. Okay. What's interesting, uh, just to take a quick rabbit trail, is when you're talking about the hyper-charismatic church and then the marrying of uh, their beliefs with a lot of these messianic beliefs, you'll get this attitude within the hyper-charismatic movement that uh, celebrating and taking part in a lot of these uh, um, Jewish customs right, uh, will almost enhance their their abilities, right? The, the hyper-charismatic church always seeking after experiences and gifts. Well, uh, if you find that somebody in a hyper-charismatic church is praying under a prayer shawl, you'll start to get that feeling from them that suddenly their prayers mean more, they're more readily accessible to God. These types of things, when you're wearing a prayer shawl, you're, you're more likely to get an answer from God when you've got that thing over you right? Um, or, for example, in the hyper-charismatic church, if you blow the shofar within the church, uh, the demons tremble and they flee because somehow they're confused and think that that's the final trumpet call and Christ is returning again, okay? <laughs> As if demons are really that stupid. Uh, you're standing there with your shofar and you blow it and they all go, oh, you know, it's happening, it's happening, he's coming back, you know? Yeah, right. But whatever the case, uh, yeah, I, I've got this history of being a part of this type of movement. I have attended many different uh, gatherings of Messianic believers, some of them not so bad, some of them embarrassingly bad and flat out heretical. And we'll be talking about some of that as we go here. So anyway, yeah, there is an emphasis on observing and celebrating the feasts. No problem there. As long as there is not this burden placed on believers that you must celebrate the feasts, okay? And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Uh, another common trait that you'll find amongst this movement is they will reject outright the celebration of any uh, pagan holiday. Now, when I say pagan, I'm going to say it from uh, their perspective. Pagan holidays from a messianic perspective would include uh, Easter, Christmas, Halloween. Nah, that's a no-brainer. That one, there's no doubt about it. That one is definitely, hands down, without debate, pagan. Uh, some of these groups will reject the celebration of birthdays. Some of them will even go after holidays like Thanksgiving, uh, obviously Valentine's Day, 
St. Patrick's Day, uh, you know, all the different uh, goofy holidays that you'll find amongst the American calendar. Uh, Most of them will be labeled as pagan. Now, uh, I've talked about Easter and Christmas in the past. Uh, I believe in that series on the feast. I can't remember, honestly. Uh, But Easter and Christmas do have some interesting origins. Uh, This is definitely a hot debate. Uh, I've heard people like, I believe Chris Pinto took a different perspective and actually showed that Easter and Christmas might not necessarily have the pagan origin that so many people claim, although he, he demonstrated both sides of the debate, and I thought he did it really well. Um, but yeah, Easter and Christmas, uh, I've heard everything from Easter uh, finds its foundation uh, amongst uh, the Druids and how they would uh, go to these caves every year at Easter time, and they would uh, take these three-month-old babies and cut, cut open their belly and then dip Easter eggs in them, uh, and then, uh, you know, dying Easter eggs, right? And then would have a massive orgy in the blood, Okay, and that orgy then would produce next year's babies, next year's three month old babies. Um, I don't know how true that is. It sounds pretty extreme. Uh, You know, Easter coming from the name Ishtar, uh, this uh, multi breasted goddess that comes down into, I believe, the Euphrates and turns a chicken into an egg laying rabbit. Uh, There's no doubt (laughs) that there's so much that's involved with Easter that is pagan. No doubt. I mean, come on. You know, giant uh, bunnies hopping around and all the eggs. Nothing to do with Christ at all whatsoever. Honestly, uh, if if I was in charge and if I had my way, I I honestly would prefer that the church, rather than celebrating Easter, would uh, celebrate uh, um, uh, first fruits and also... Uh, the Passover. I mean, doesn't that make more sense? I mean, Christ was crucified on the Passover. He was resurrected on first fruits. That would make more sense. But again, I'm not. I'm not advocating any kind of legalism here. I think it's just. It just makes more sense. But in our pagan Christian uh, nation that we live in, uh, it's so much more fun to get Easter eggs and Cadbury eggs and chocolate covered. Uh, uh, marshmallow bunnies, yum, so yummy, not good for you, but yummy, um, whatever the case, you know, and that just makes more sense. Uh, Christmas, December 25th, uh, you can go back and look at some of the ancient pagan mystery religions, and you'll find that Jupiter uh, was supposedly born on December 25th, Osiris, uh, uh, um, Tammuz, who was... Uh, Nimrod's son, okay, turned out that Tammuz was deified in in some way. Uh, Yeah, so many of these different pagan mystery religions have December 25th as their god's birth, okay? And there is some evidence to suggest that the Catholic Church uh, either A, decided to compromise and put you know, started stating that Christ was born on December 25th uh, to appease the masses, you know, to try and bring together the pagans and the Christians so that everybody wasn't fighting and perhaps hopefully to convert a bunch of the pagans to 
Catholicism. Boy, isn't that what we see nowadays with Catholicism making all these inroads, these ecumenical moves to try and uh, pull together all the air quotes, okay, air quotes here, uh, Christian-esque looking faiths that are out there, including Mormonism, which is nothing Christian about it. Uh, uh, So yeah, there is that particular view. Then there's another view that's out there that the church uh, decided to declare that Christ was born on December 25th simply to um, stamp out, kind of like redeem these pagan holidays. All right. Uh, you know, it's, it's a big debate. Uh, there is a lot of evidence on both sides. It's kind of hard to say. What we can say is that the Bible doesn't say when Christ was born. We do know that. Okay. We don't know when he was born. Uh, we can look at, um, certain indicators from the text that seem to indicate that Christ was definitely not born on December 25th. Uh, just going from memory here, I don't have any notes in front of me, but I know I've talked about this before. Um, if you look at, uh, 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 John the Baptist, okay, he was born, uh, I think it was six months before Christ. He was conceived about six months before Christ was born or, or conceived and, um, just days before John the Baptist was conceived, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was um, serving in the temple, which his particular family line could only serve during a particular time of the year. So you're able to look at that time of the year and then uh, add a few days and then count forward six months and then uh, look at the time at which Christ uh, would have been born and most likely was actually probably around the time of the Feast of, of Tabernacles. So, I don't know, kind of interesting. Uh, whatever the case, uh, within these Messianic movements, there is a strong rejection of celebrating Easter and Christmas. And uh, I actually strongly object to celebrating Halloween, personally. Um, birthdays? Pfft, I don't have a problem with that. Thanksgiving? Yeah, Let's eat. <laughs> but uh, um, <clears throat> they will strongly object to uh, all pagan holidays. Some of these messianic movements will actually consider it a sin to observe these holidays. Some of them are a little bit more graceful and merciful. So that's another thing. Um, and many of these messianic movements will uh, point out that Catholic pagan influence connection Uh, with these holidays. Another thing that you're going to find common amongst these groups is a, a, an emphasis on worshiping and coming together for your, your church, for lack of a better way to say it, your, your fellowship with other believers rather than Sunday, they will do it either on Saturday or Friday night. I think Friday night is technically, um, the right time to do it. I mean, if you were going to if you were going to try and come together and observe the Sabbath, uh, Friday night is historically how that would work. Because that was, Friday night would be uh, the beginning of the Sabbath. And that was how they did it. Uh, but whatever the case, that's that's kind of a hot debate too amongst many of the Messianic crowd. Uh, they will not worship on Sunday. Some will go as far as to say, if you worship on Sunday, you're not saved. 
Okay, some of them will say that if you worship on Sunday, you have taken the mark of the beast. Yeah, show me that from Scripture. Uh, I mean, when you look at the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation, it's talking about a mark in your right hand or in your forehead. Um, Where you stretch that to make the mark of the beast into Sunday worship, I mean, that's some serious gymnastics right there. Uh, But there are many who will say that you really should come together and worship on Saturday or, you know, the seventh day of the week rather than Sunday. Um, I have recorded a series on this topic, so I don't want to spend too much time talking about this. Uh, The reason why the church meets on Sunday, in a nutshell, is because Christ rose on the first day of the week, and after that, there was like this shift And you see it throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Again, check out my series on uh, should we worship on Saturday or Sunday. Um, Because as you follow through the New Testament, uh, mostly the book of Acts, I mean, that's where you're going to find the most um, history as far as that goes. You're going to see that everybody came together on Sundays to commemorate Christ's resurrection. And so that's where that new tradition started. They'd get together on Sundays, not Saturdays, not on the Sabbath. They got together on the first day of the week. It says it over and over, the first day of the week, the first day of the week. They'd get together, they would worship, they would uh, teach each other, uh, and they would also collect offerings to help out other believers. And and so (laughs) that sounds a lot like church, doesn't it? So I don't know. I mean, if, if, if a person wanted to make an emphasis and you know, say that uh, worshiping on Sunday was taking the mark of the beast, then you would also have to say that uh, all the new believers in the book of Acts took the mark of the beast. Sorry, but no. Um, yes, the, the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so... Um, yeah, check out my series on that topic. It is it is a hotly debated topic. Uh, we're going to touch on it a little bit farther in this uh, series, probably next week's podcast, where we're really going to get into, um, well, the refutation of some of these ideas. Uh, again, uh, none of this stuff is out and out bad until you draw a line in the sand and say, we must get back to the Jewish roots. We have to observe the feasts. We cannot uh, celebrate Christmas or Easter with our family. Uh, These types of things, you know, just as a little side note, going back a little bit with the Easter and Christmas thing, you know, again, I've run with these crowds for a long time. I've experienced both sides. My wife and I refused to celebrate Easter and Christmas for about Oh, I don't know. It's probably about seven or eight years. And this is what we encountered. So my following arguments are not going to be scripturally based. They're going to be more pragmatic. So uh, take them with a massive grain of salt. Okay, I'm admitting that right up front. Uh, But this is what we experienced. We experienced alienation, uh, anger. Our family and our extended family they got very aggravated with us. 
it got to the point where they wouldn't even try to invite us. And then during Easter and Christmas, everybody would get together and talk about how stupid Danielle and Mike were for not celebrating Easter and Christmas. Um, you know, and, and it, it got to a point where it really drove a wedge between us and our family. I know Christ said that he would bring a sword between mother and, or, you know, children and parents and uh, these types of things. You know, there would be that natural division that would take place because of our faith. I understand that. I under, I get it. I get it. Uh, but in us not celebrating with them, okay? It's not like we were promoting Easter and Christmas when we did celebrate. Um, it was more like we just wanted to be there with the family, right? Uh, hang out with the family, love on your family, have a good time fellowshipping with your family, these types of things. It's not like we were uh, bowing down to a uh, Christmas tree and uh, receiving gifts from some kind of phallic symbol that's the Christmas tree, okay? Uh, which is one of the things that's often said about Christmas. Um, no, it, it actually drove a huge wedge. Now, there came a point at which my wife and I thought, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing in the scriptures that really we should be convinced in our own minds one day isn't any more important than another day. It's not... You know, we're under grace now. It's not like we're thumbing our nose at God when we go to our family's houses on these days and spend time with them. So we very reluctantly got on our knees and we asked for forgiveness from God and said, you know, if, if we are, we're going to try this. We're going to try this. And if we are offending you, you know, please forgive us. We're, we're, we just don't know what to do anymore because it's causing so much family turmoil. This is what we experienced. We went to the family's house. People were shocked that we showed up. We were received with huge hugs. We were welcomed back into the family, if you will. People were so excited that we were showing up. There were a few snide remarks that were, were launched against us throughout the evening because people were still not sure where we, where we were with things. But you know what happened? Because we were there, uh, it was Christmas. Th that was the first time we tried this. Um, because of this, I had so many different conversations throughout that night to witness and to share Christ <laughs> with so many different family members. Guys, that was the fruit of that. Uh, and now when we go and hang out with the family on Christmas and Easter, see, it's those two days a year where the rest of the unchurched uh, nation at least acknowledges that there's some kind of Christ-centeredness going on, right? At least the Bible and Christian concepts are fresh on their mind during Easter and Christmas. And many of them are the type of Christians that only show up to church on Easter and Christmas. And that is that time where you use those already um, accepted cultural norms to springboard into the gospel. I'll tell you what, I mean, we've, we've had more witnessing encounters on Easter and Christmas than any other days of the year when it comes to our family. Uh, so again, pragmatically speaking, wow, that really worked out. Whereas before, 
our Christian witness meant nothing. I mean, we were so alienated, so weird to the rest of the family. They didn't want anything to do with our faith. Okay? But we're under grace. And we went to these gatherings, started going to these gatherings. Uh, we're still kind of leery about Halloween. I mean, ugh. It's just a disgusting uh, holiday, honestly. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Leave that one to the side. That That is just trash, Halloween. Uh, but... Easter and Christmas, it was like, you know what? Let's show up. Let's eat with them. Let's love on them. Let's use any opportunity we can to share the gospel. And you know what? We were welcomed with with, with open arms and had amazing success in speaking with our family and and reestablishing those links where we are able to have a witness there. Uh, It has had nothing but good fruit ever since we decided to open that door back up. Now, if I'm wrong about that, and I'm pretty certain I'm not, as we're going to discuss scripturally why we took this stance, uh, God forgive me. Uh, but I don't, no, I don't think so. When you look at what the Bible says, uh, it's, you know, th- it's a non-issue. It really is. So be convinced in your own mind. I mean, if you're feeling convicted about it, then you probably shouldn't, right? So uh, next, another thing that you'll find amongst these movements is a strong emphasis on the Torah, Nothing wrong with that. Oh, Torah. (laughs) Let's define terms. Uh, Also known as the Pentateuch, it is the first five books of the Bible. The first five books written by Moses. The Torah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Um, A really strong emphasis on the Torah. Many of these groups will get together on their Friday nights or Saturdays and will study the Torah. Okay? Uh, again, nothing wrong with that as long as you're not neglecting the rest of the Bible. And that is actually what usually ends up happening amongst these movements. See, there is a, a feeling and often a flat out teaching that the Torah being the foundation of the Bible is uh, more important. And, and in fact, there's kind of this unspoken feeling that you get amongst the Messianic crowd that the Torah is more inspired and the rest of the Bible is actually less inspired. Uh, as if God, you know, he, he was really intent on making sure every last uh, jot and tittle of the Torah is perfect. And then the rest of the Bible, well, he just kind of winged it. You know what I mean? Uh, and so there's a strong emphasis on the Torah and a, a weakened, diminished emphasis on the rest of the Bible, especially the New Testament. Uh, which is tragic, in in my opinion. I've I've found that many that are part of this movement, they know the Torah inside and out, which is cool. But then when you start talking the New Testament, uh, they almost you know get this scoffing attitude, like, oh, well, you know, that's that book's you know that that part of the Bible has a Greek mindset, and you know, it's lesser. Okay, it's it's almost like. The, the crumbs that were left over from the master's table, if you will. Okay. And I guess that leads me to the next point. There's an overemphasis on all things Hebrew. Okay. So uh, they want to learn as much Hebrew as they can. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, but what you'll find is suddenly uh, you start talking. I've got a lot of friends that are still involved with this movement and you talk to them and it's like they do everything they can to incorporate all kinds of Hebrew phrases from uh, the Bible 
in their speech, you know, so they won't say the regular terminology that you and I are generally used to. They'll use uh, Hebrew names and words. Um, They'll pronounce the names in the Bible from a Hebrew perspective oftentimes. They'll say certain key words uh, that you find within the scriptures in Hebrew rather than in English. Um, And what comes with that is a an elitism. Uh, I've found that amongst the Hebrew roots slash messianic movement, there is this feeling of elitism, that they are the ones that are cutting edge. They're the ones that are really pleasing God. And all of us out there that worship on Sundays, all of us out there that don't follow uh, and observe all the feasts, uh, this, that, and the other, we're actually lesser Christians. We're kind of lukewarm. Okay. In fact, some of these groups will even question our salvation. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, it can actually get fairly uh, painful when you're talking to these people and they start uh, looking down at you and, and almost insulting you for your perspectives on on many things. So, yeah, uh, and and I guess on that note, then also the New Testament, it is claimed that all the books in the New Testament were originally written in Hebrew. Guys, uh, that very well could be. I haven't looked into that debate too deeply, but I can say this. Um, I have found no evidence at all whatsoever of the New Testament, any of the books, any of the books being written in Hebrew uh, one of these days, I'll do a study on that. I'll probably bring in an expert, somebody that studied uh, the New Testament in the Greek, uh, you know, in depth and really knows their stuff and say, okay, if if the Bible, if the New Testament was translated from Hebrew, we should find some grammatical uh, um, indicators in the Greek that originally it was written in Hebrew. I would imagine we'd find a great many different things in the Greek grammatically uh, that would tell us, that would indicate that these books were originally written in Hebrew. We have not found any uh, um, Hebrew manuscripts, you know, as far as that goes. There's nothing that we can find that traces back that we can say, see, you know, here's the book of Matthew and it's dating older than these other manuscripts and it's in Hebrew, and you can see where they translated it, how they translated it into Greek. No, we don't have any of that. So, um, sorry, you know, it's it's just not there. Um, also, there's a strong emphasis on reading all things from the Bible from a Hebrew perspective. So, you know, like I said, if you have a, you know, it's it's an insult to have a Greek mindset. Um, you know, guys. Uh, the writers of the New Testament, they spoke and wrote the Bible in Greek. That was kind of like English is nowadays. That's what Greek was during uh, the time of Christ and shortly thereafter. You know, there was a period of time where because of Rome and, you know, that old saying, all roads lead to Rome, uh, Romans started building roads all over the place. They were conquering militarily, And they had such a strong influence and a big empire that the Greek language uh, became the dominant language of that time. 
just like English is now. You can go to just about any country in the world and you'll find that a good percentage of the population knows English. And that's why uh, I am blessed to have this ministry that I was born in America, I know English, and now I'm able to put these podcasts out and I get people all over the world. I see downloads coming from every single country in the world uh, of, of the material that I'm putting out because they can understand what I'm saying. How cool is that? What an amazing time to be alive. Well, likewise, the writing of the New Testament. It was written in Greek because that was the dominant language of the day and it could be broadcast far and wide and everybody, for the most part, would be able to understand it. And it was rapidly translated into other languages uh, because of that, because people in other areas were like, oh, well, I know Greek. I'll translate that into, our, uh, into, into my native tongue, and then my people will be able to understand it even if they can't read Greek. And that's how God was able to spread Christianity like wildfire. I mean, there was no time in history that God could have done this better than right then during that Roman Empire and, and the Greek language being the, pro, the prominent language. So anyway, <clears throat> another thing that you might find, uh, this is uh, a little more obscure, okay? Everything that I've mentioned thus far, you find in almost all Messianic congregations. Now we're going to get into some of the more obscure ones. Uh, there are many Messianic groups out there that reject the writings of Paul. <laughs> I mean, gasp of horror. What? I mean, this is the guy that was beat, stoned, uh, shipwrecked, imprisoned, flogged. I mean, so many things happened to Paul for the gospel's sake. They reject Paul because of his stance on works versus grace. Paul had a very clear way of speaking, and he flat out, as we're going to see as we uh, progress through this series here, we're going to see that Paul flat out refutes a lot of these ideas. Again, there's nothing wrong with all the things we've mentioned thus far until you start saying you have to. As soon as you say you have to, you have now thrown a stumbling block in front of the Gentiles and you're, you're causing problems. You're getting stuck in legalism, majoring on minors and minoring on majors. Uh, it's, it's, it's really sad. And I've got story after story after story, unfortunately, of uh, friends who have majored on minors and minored on majors. They, f they spend so much time focusing on the outside of the cup, okay, to go with Jesus' analogy, focusing on the outside of the cup, focusing on their outward appearance and pleasing God with all of these uh, 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 legalistic uh, commands and forgetting the weightier matters of truth and love and loving the Lord with all your heart and loving the na your neighbor as yourself, totally missing the boat. And to go back on the Easter Christmas debate and what I was talking about, there it is. That's exactly it. Uh, we were destroying our, our relationship with the family by refusing to participate in their pagan holidays. Uh, and, and again, by participate, I'm not talking about us getting all excited and dressing up in a Santa Claus outfit and all this nonsense that goes along with Christmas and Easter, but just showing up, just showing up. They know 
our position at this point. We've explained it. But we're there to love them. We're there to break bread with them. We're there to have a good time together as a family because everybody's there together under one roof. And we're going to have fun with them. And we're going to try and share the gospel in between. Uh, We were looking at the weightier matters of things, uh, which was our witness to the family. Because let's face it, you know, when you are shutting the doors on all this stuff, you, you don't, people don't admire that. They're not like, wow, you know, I want that faith. No, they're like, that's just creepy. That's just weird. You guys are off your rocker. I don't want anything to do with your God. You know, these types of things. Uh, I, I've seen a lot of children rebel against their parents because of this kind of stuff too. So anyway, going back to Paul, yes, a lot of, some Messianic groups will reject the writings of Paul. Some Messianic groups will just out and out reject the book of Galatians. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> that whole book of Galatians is refuting the Judea, the Judaizers and this really strong emphasis on following all of the Jewish laws uh, and also all the man-made laws that were being followed at the time. Galatians just destroys that idea. Uh, I went to a Messianic fellowship um, where I overheard the, the guy that was running this uh, fellowship, his name is Mark, overheard Mark saying that uh, they, they had a, a Bible study on a different night. And these Bible studies were about an hour and a half to two hours long. And they were in the book of Galatians. And they had been in the book of Galatians for a year. A year in the book of Galatians. Now, guys, I know the Bible is packed full of good stuff. But you know, if somebody is spending an hour and a half to two hours a week on one book that's what? Galatians is what? Five or six chapters? I forget. You know, (laughs) some major overhaul and shenanigans are going on there. And uh, this guy would refuse to answer my question. I asked him over and over and over, do you believe in salvation by grace through faith alone? Or do you believe that it is dependent on our works? He He refused to answer that question. He would not answer it. Therefore, uh, I had to conclude after debating with the guy until two in the morning that he was very legalistic uh, and was completely lost in his his uh, view of things. So, yeah, a lot of these groups will reject the book of Galatians and many others will reject the book of Hebrews. Uh, I know that Monty Judah will reject the book of Hebrews. Uh, I used to be a big fan of Monty Judah, but uh, then I started seeing and hearing things that really bothered me. One of the things is he keeps referring to the sages. The sages say this. The sages believe that. Who are these sages? Well, I came to find out the sages, whenever he was saying that, he was quoting the Talmud. Oh, no. The Talmud is a train wreck, a theological train wreck of legalism and man-made rules, uh, Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. I mean, it is a mess, and it is a Christ-hating group of works. Not good, okay? Don't quote the quote-unquote sages. No, no. So I lost faith in uh, uh, Monty Judah real quick. Um, Yeah, he out and out rejects the book of Hebrews, 
Um, uh, so there's that. Uh, another thing I should have mentioned, this is a common characteristic amongst all of the messianic movements. So I should have had this in my outline earlier. Uh, the observance of all the dietary guidelines that you find in the Old Testament. So don't eat shellfish and don't eat crab. And oh, I love crab legs. Good grief. Yummy. Don't eat lobster. Don't eat pork. Uh, you know, all the different unclean animals that are in the Old Testament, you cannot eat those. And uh, there's that strong emphasis on observing all those dietary guidelines. I had somebody else from this movement tell me that uh, that eating unkosher or, you know, not following these guidelines was also taking the mark of the beast. You know, gasp of horror. Are you crazy? No, no, Peter, by God's own uh, command, uh, ate unkosher or, you know, disobeyed these dietary guidelines. Uh, so, yeah, you will see that uh, many of them just choose to eat coat or I keep calling it kosher. It's not kosher. Uh, choose to eat observing all the dietary guidelines uh, uh, because they want to be pleasing to God. Fair enough. That's fine. I know that there's a lot of health reasons involved with that. I avoid pork personally because I know it's so bad for you. Uh, I also avoid uh, lobster and crab because they're bottom feeders and it's so bad for you. And oh, so yummy. Bacon. I miss bacon. Um, <laughs> I lament and wail and gnash my teeth over bacon. But anyway, um, I avoid a lot of those foods just strictly because they're so bad for you. Uh, and, and that's all fine and dandy. That's cool. That's, I mean, yeah. But once you make it a you have to, now it becomes legalism and you see a lot of that going on. So we're at the 45-minute point, which is exactly where I was expecting to be at this point. Next week, we're going to look at uh, many scriptures that are going to uh, re refute a lot of these ideas. Should Gentile believers do everything they can to find the Jewish roots of the faith? It's one thing to know and understand and to uh, perhaps even participate uh, for education's sake, you know, and just to kind of round off your relationship with the Lord. That's pretty awesome, if you ask me. Uh, it's a whole nother thing when it becomes, you know, this is the only way to really please God. And those that don't do this, they're not really pleasing God. They're kind of lukewarm and, you know, uh, we should part ways with those types of believers. Okay, now we've got issues. That's That's a problem. Okay. Oh, you, you can't call uh, Jesus, Jesus. You have to call him Yeshua or Yehoshua. You know, these types of things. Ugh. Okay, so we're going to deal with that next week. So uh, with that, friends, don't miss out. Next week will be fun too. I love you guys, and we'll see you next week. Sing it.